It all seemed to be going so well. It all seemed to be going so well. And then the opposition got real. It all seemed to be going so well. And then the opposition got real. It has been quite a week for our American friends, hasn't it? <laughs> Everything seemed to be going so well, in one sense, for Secretary Clinton. And millions, both in America and across the globe, were very sure that she would be the next commander-in-chief, for not much more reason than the fact that Donald Trump was the only one who stood in her way. It all seemed to be going very well. And that's how the networks portrayed it. Of course, Hillary's going to win. But then the votes were cast. And the dust settled. And Donald Trump will be President of the United States. After all, it's a shock to the system. Many are still reeling from the news. It's a powerful reminder to us that things often don't work out the way that we might expect. I'm sure we've all experienced something of that at some point. Things do seem to be going very well for us in our lives. And then suddenly we are facing opposition that we never foresaw. I remember one time I was flying back from London and I just finished a term uh, at Bible College there and I was to be reunited with Melissa who had been staying here and doing her medical studies and we hadn't even seen each other for months. And so naturally I was a very happy man. I was thinking happy thoughts about all the happy days that I have ahead. And I had to just share my happiness with someone close by on this plane and so I turned to the poor guy next to me and we started talking, and when I explained why I was so happy, he was happy for me as well. And then he, of course, as you do, he asked me casually in our conversation, so tell me, Tim, why, why, why are you going back to KL? Uh, what do you do for a living? And I'm still full of excitement, happiness brimming over. I just said, oh, I'm training to be a pastor. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, opposition. As this guy, this pretty much total stranger, just fired back at me. Who did you meet? Who convinced you to waste your life doing that? This was someone I'd only met five minutes ago. It was such a shock. Already this guy who I hardly knew was tearing into my vocation, my chosen vocation as a pastor. And I, I had to get myself back together. I tried to give him an answer, but he wasn't really interested in talking to me after that. Everything seemed to be going so well. And then the opposition got real. Well, this is the pattern that we see in Esther as we continue in this story today. Things are going well, and then opposition comes out of nowhere. If you were here last week, you'll know those opening chapters were full of joy. They were full of promise. This Jewish orphan, Esther, cared for by her uncle Mordecai, she had been noticed and brought into the king's palace. She'd been made queen of all Persia, the superpower of the day. This Jewish orphan exile. It was a real rags to riches moment. And we ended last week with a huge party, a great celebration, tax exemptions for, for all the people of the kingdom. Things were going so well. And now suddenly there's trouble 
on the horizon. And we start today just with some subtle signs of caution before things get much worse, some subtle signs of caution. First, we're reminded of Mordecai's warning that he gave to Esther as she was to go into the palace. It's here again for us as we come to our verses. Come with me and read with me from chapter 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Esther being taken into the palace, and as she went, Mordecai warned her, don't tell anyone about your background, that you're a Jew. Seems he knew it was a, a risky, uh, risky background to come from when you were going to be so close to the powerhouse in Persia. That's the first just small sign of caution. For some reason, the author wants to remind us of that. But, but then we see Mordecai given a golden opportunity to impress. And yet again, it, it doesn't actually pay off the way we might expect. I think it's another sign of caution preparing us for what's to come. Look in verse 21 as we carry on. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Two of the king's most trusted servants, uh, the gatekeepers, uh, the bodyguards who would stand on the seal between uh, the outside in the palace and his throne room, they themselves, they're plotting an, uh, plotting an assassination uh, against their king. Uh, but we're told Mordecai is in the right place at the right time. Verse 22, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And with Esther now in the palace, he has the perfect means of communicating this treacherous plot to the king. And, and that's what he does. He, he tells Esther in the palace, and Esther goes and, and warns the king, and we're told she does it in the name of Mordecai, so the king knows this, this warning's come not from her, but it's come from Mordecai himself. And the traitorous bodyguards, they're exposed, their plot is foiled, the king is saved. But Mordecai isn't really rewarded here. You see a little bit later down at the end of chapter 2, it, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It, it was recorded in the king's diary that it happened. But that's it. Nothing more. No real reward for Mordecai. He had just saved the king's life. Esther got a banquet just because she was beautiful. Mordecai gets nothing. And now things go from bad to worse. As the king, having passed over Mordecai, well, he decides to honor another instead. We move into chapter 3, and we have the hatred of Haman. The hatred of Haman. Read with me from chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Poor old Mordecai, he remains in his position as a lowly civil servant, and now the king appoints this other man, this Haman the Agagite, and he's made prime minister in charge of all of the king's affairs, second only to the king. 
And all the king, we're told in verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded. You know, we, today we might stand for a royal official as they walk into the room. I had to do that. I attended a, a wedding dinner a little while ago, and the guest of honor was Prime Minister Najib. And as his name was announced, everybody just suddenly stood up to pay respect to the PM as he walked into the room. Well, in Persia, you bowed. You bowed low to your superiors. It was just a customary sign of respect that they were your boss. And you did it especially if the king, as we're told, commanded you to do it. But then see again in verse 2. What are we told at the end? But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Haman came into the offices each morning and Mordecai, well, he would just continue sitting in the corner reading his newspaper. He'd pay no attention to Haman, his new boss. And the king's servants, all the others who are bowing to, to Haman, they can't believe it. And they, they, they go to Mordecai and say, well, what are you doing? Why, why don't you just bow? In the end, as Mordecai won't listen, they go to Haman himself. And see in verse 4. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. It's these servants who are doing what they're told. They want to know if Mordecai is going to get away with his insubordination. And, and it seems Haman, while well, being such a proud man, he hadn't even noticed to this point what Mordecai had been doing and disgracing him. But now that it's been pointed out, Mordecai the Jew won't bow to you, Haman. Well, we see Haman's reaction in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Wow. That's a, a bit of an overreaction isn't it? Haman is effectively saying, oh, uh, this, uh, this guy Mordecai, he, he won't bow to me as he should. I'll have him killed. No, 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 no. I won't have him. I'll have his whole family killed. No, 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 no. I, I know, a much better idea. I'll wipe out his entire people. Such an overreaction. What is going on here? Responding to just a little bit of disrespectful behavior with genocide. I will wipe out all the Jews. Well, as we're going to see in this chapter, this is no ordinary anger. First of all, we see it's actually an ancient hatred, an ancient hatred. Remember how Haman was introduced back in verse 1 of chapter 3? He is Haman the Agagite. That means he's the descendant of Agag. And Agag, we know from uh, earlier in the scriptures, in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, they were really, really bad news for God's people. In fact, that actually takes us all the way back to when God first called his people out of Egypt, all the way back in Exodus. Yeah, and he was leading them by Moses to Mount Sinai, uh, that they might know him as their God, they might know his presence and his blessing with them. And the Amalekites were the first group, the first nation to come out and to attack Israel. And they fought bitterly against them, trying to prevent them 
from coming to God as he had called them. They tried their utmost to just wipe them out. And because the Amalekites had done this, they treated God's people this way, the Lord himself swore, uh, Exodus 17, 16, if you're taking notes, he swore the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so many generations later, he calls King Saul. And he tells King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 to destroy the Amalekites and King Agag, their king. But Saul was not a faithful king, and he did not obey the Lord in all things. And so these bitter enemies of Israel, they were allowed to live on. And now, again, here in Esther, we have Haman of the line of King Agag, just another Amalekite, and he is over and against Mordecai, who he's just found out is a Jew. Not just any Jew. Remember from last week, we were told Mordecai, as a Jew, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. In fact, he is a descendant of Kish, the father of Saul. So what's being played out here is actually an ancient feud from generation to generation, ever since the beginning of God's people. This savage foe, the Amalekites, are hitting back again. It's just come to the surface through this wicked Haman, as he now, just because Mordecai's shown him some disrespect, he now desires to wipe out every last one of God's people. But as we come on, we see Haman is also a very superstitious man. It's a superstitious hatred that he has. He begins with a bit of superstitious forecasting. He wants to know the best day to carry out his wicked plot, this planned genocide against the Jews. And so we're told he casts the pur, P-U-R, the pur. These, the, the pur were these ancient dice. Come with me to verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. Uh, the pur, they were Akkadian dice, they were four-sided, and they were commonly used by lots of the nations to try and work out superstitiously when would be the best time uh, to do anything, to place a bet, or in Haman's case, to commit genocide, or anything like that. And so his advisors would keep on rolling these dice, these per, before him day by day. And each time the dice were rolled, uh, day by day, month by month, they indicated the same time again and again and again. Uh, We're told in verse 7 it's currently the month of Nisan, that's April on our calendar. And as the dice were rolled by servants again and again, they indicate the month of Adar. And that means March. It's not great news for Haman. April, he has to wait till March the next year to carry out his plot. But But the dice have spoken, of course. And Haman starts plotting away. He knows the next thing he has to do is win over the king himself. He might have been the prime minister, he might have had a lot of power, but only the king could order the eradication of an entire people in his kingdom. So Haman seeks his audience with the king. And so now we have a deceitful hatred. Come with me to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. You notice he doesn't even mention the Jews by name. 
oh, king, there's just some people out there. They're, and they're scattered. They're everywhere. But they're scattered throughout your empire. Well, that, that was true. The Jews were scattered about the empire. But so were hundreds and hundreds of other nationalities that the Persians had occupied at that time. And then Haman continues. Oh, but their laws are different from those of the other people. And again, that was true in a sense. Uh, the Jews, we know that they're God's people. And God had given them his law to live by. They live by the law of Moses. And yet then Haman starts to twist these facts to his own ends to get his way. We carry on. They do not keep the king's laws. So that it's not up to the prophet of the king to tolerate them. Wow. That's a leap. Well, not only were the Jews in Persia known to be fairly law-abiding citizens, they'd obey the law of Moses, but they would, wherever they could, they'd be keeping the law of the land and honoring the king as well. Not only that, but two specific Jews who we've met already, Mordecai and Esther, have just saved the king's life. It's not to the king's prophets who tolerate the Jews. Yeah, they're, they're, they're seditious troublemakers. They even foil assassination plots for the sake of the protection of the king. They're terrible, aren't they? Even Haman knew he was pushing it here, and so just to sweeten the deal, he takes a note from the Malaysian playbook. <laughs> he slips in a bribe. Verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. We've had half-truths, blatant lies, and now a bribe. And alas, it works. The ambivalent king, he takes his signet ring off his finger. It's like the authorizing seal, the presidential pin code. And with it, as Haman receives it, he is now empowered to write any command in the king's name. An edict that cannot be broken. It cannot be reversed according to Persian law. And with this new power on his shoulders, Haman shows the greatness of his hatred, the universal hatred he shows to God's people. Have a look in verse 13. Verse 13. This is what he does. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill to annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine you just start driving out to work in the Klang Valley one morning, and up there on one of the huge billboards, it's not a film advertisement this time, it's not an Apple iPhone photo, it's a royal decree from the king. And it's written in English, in Malay, in Iban, in Chinese, in Tamil. March next year, you and your family and all your kindred from whichever particular background you come from, anyone in the city by royal order must hunt you down, murder you, move into your house and enjoy your stuff with total Impunity, with no fear of retribution. I reckon when you saw that edict, you'd be thinking, mm, yeah, maybe moving to Australia next, day, next year would be a bad idea. And yet that wasn't an option for the Jews. 
There's no easy escape hatch for them. The Persian Empire was basically the known world at this time. This edict went over all 127 provinces. That includes Judea and Samaria. It includes Jerusalem. It was applicable to every single land that the Jews called home. Haman's hatred is universal in scope. He is working so hard to wipe all of God's people at this time off the face of the earth. As we move into chapter 4, we see how the Jews respond, specifically, mainly with Mordecai. And the first response, understandably, is anguish. Mordecai, he goes to work that morning, and he sees this edict written on the city walls, and his world just turns upside down. 4 verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He did this along with the rest of the Jews, we're told, throughout the empire. He shows himself in his dress and in his mood to be a thoroughly broken man. He, he rips the nice shirt he would have been wearing off his back. He takes a single piece of cloth and wraps it around him, and he stands in the streets with ash on his face. It's a bit like our custom for our Chinese friends, at least, who to choose to wear white to a funeral, clothing that communicates bitter sorrow over the death of a loved one. Well, death hasn't come yet, but it is approaching. The edict says so for Mordecai and for all of God's people. And the only one who doesn't seem to be aware of this impending doom is Esther herself. She's housed away in the palace, away from the city streets. Uh, You see Mordecai in his miserable sackcloth now. He isn't allowed to just go into the king's palace, that area, as he normally could. Because if he was wearing this sackcloth and ashes, uh, the king didn't mind the odd bit of genocide, but he was very particular when it came to etiquette in his own house. So Mordecai couldn't get to Esther. He just has to sit out on the road in despair. But Esther's servants, they just look out of the window and they see Mordecai sitting in the street. And the second they tell Esther about it, she she sends them to take him new clothes because she wants him to come in. Uh, What is going on? Why are you dressed this way? Why are you in such despair? And with that, Mordecai sees this opportunity to actually do something. And we come to Mordecai's petition in verses 7 to 9. He he sends via her servants, Esther, this crucial word. He he tells her exactly what's happened about Haman's great bribe to to sway the king. And he's even passed a copy of the edict. He's holding it in his hands and he passed it to Esther's servants to pass to her so she can see it in every language. She would have seen this terrible news. This time next year, the Jews are to be killed. And so Mordecai commands Esther again via her servants, you must go to the king and beg him, plead with him on behalf of your people. But Esther hesitates. She hesitates. And it's not over the impending genocide of her entire people. You could understand she'd be a little bit taken aback at first, but actually her hesitation isn't over this impending threat. Her hesitation is at Mordecai's command to go to the king that very moment in order to plea for mercy. You see, when done against Persian custom, to just go into the king's presence without an invitation, well, that could mean the death penalty. Have a look in verse 11. Or the end of verse 11. 
There is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, Esther says, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been 30 days since Esther's actually been invited into the king's presence. Perhaps he's got a new flavor of the month now. He wouldn't be thrilled to see her barging in. Well, Esther might be hesitating, but Mordecai isn't going to give up. First, he reminds her in verse 13, look, you're a Jew, remember? Sooner or later, it might be secret for now, but sooner or later, that's going to get found out. Those palace officials are going to learn of it. They're going to tell the king, and if Haman's edict stands, you're going to die. But then see what Haman says in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai, out of nowhere, expresses this sudden, incredible statement of faith. In the midst of all of this darkness, he's somehow still hopeful and certain relief and deliverance will rise for our people from another place. It's, it's ominous. Just a belief that somehow Haman would not succeed in wiping out God's people. It might be, we're not told, it might be he's recalling God's promises to Abraham, uh, the father of God's people in the beginning. How through Abraham, God had promised through him and his descendants, he would bless all the, world, all the earth. And anyone who cursed Abraham and his descendants, they themselves would be cursed by God. And Mordecai has this faith that God's people, for some reason, can have hope. They will not be wiped out. And with that assurance, he finishes with this leading question for Esther to consider. In verse 14 again, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It was uncanny, really. Esther, this Jewish orphan, an exile, a nobody, she's suddenly seen. She's suddenly brought close. She's suddenly exalted by the king, now the favored queen of Persia. She just happens to be in the best place to do something about this tragic reality. As Haman's wicked plot starts to take shape, but she knows it's still a risk. Going into the king's presence without invite, it could mean her death. And so she asks Mordecai and all the Jews in, in Susa, in the capital city where she is, please fast for me. Three days and three nights. I'm going to do the same uh, with my servants, and then, yes, I will go before the king. Oh, the fast, the prayers, they, they, they won't guarantee her safety, though. You see the end of verse 16? Her final words to Mordecai, and if I perish, I perish things really have taken a turn for the worse, haven't they? It was lavish parties, exaltation in the opening chapters, and now we have this Haman, this wicked tyrant, working powerfully, and it seems succeeding in bringing death and destruction to all of God's people, Mordecai, Esther, and the rest. And we have Esther, the, the favored queen, now putting her life on the line in order to go and plead her people's case. I wonder, what can we take from these dark chapters in the story? I think two lessons for us this morning. Firstly, as a member of God's people, as a Christian today, don't be surprised. 
by opposition. Don't be surprised by opposition. Uh, it just came out of the blue here, didn't it? Haman enters the scene from nowhere. Mordecai does this small thing of not showing him honor. And all of a sudden, God's people are facing genocide. It is a spectacularly evil and unjustified opposition. And yet, remember, it's ancient. It is an evil that raged against God and his people long before in the Exodus and ever since. And here again in Esther, it has come to the surface. Remember Jesus' words to us in our New Testament reading from John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, the world hates you. Our Lord Jesus, God's own Son, come to us. He knew opposition. He knew it far more than we ever will. From the day he was born, he was a marked man. Remember King Herod, just another Haman, a deceitful murderer? What does he order the wise men? Oh, find this newborn king for me that I might too go and worship him. Ha, ha, ha. He planned to simply kill Jesus before he could even walk. And when Herod's evil scheme failed, the wickedness, just like Haman's, it got universal, didn't it? As he ordered every Hebrew baby boy to be killed, slaughtered, that very night. And that murderous opposition marked Jesus' life from then on in. You're only a few chapters into the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has hardly done anything as he's come to his ministry, and so many are plotting to destroy him. Until finally, with the help of wicked men, his enemies succeed, and Jesus is crucified, hung on a cruel cross, the innocent one put to death. And that is how our world in sin treats our Creator and God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and so often it will hate us also as his people redeemed in Christ. At times, that hatred even boils over today to the kind of hatred, the extremes we see in Esther this morning. I wonder, do you recognize this symbol? It became a very popular symbol on Facebook a few years ago to make it clear what ISIS were doing in Iraq and in Syria there's a mark on the wall of that home in Mosul. ISIS were identifying with that mark, Christian homes. And that is the edict our remaining brethren must face in cities like that each day right now. That was ISIS's promise. If we find you in your home when we return, we're going to tax you. If we find you in your home we return, we're going to demand that you reject Christ as your Messiah. If we find you in your home and you return and you refuse, we will probably kill you and all of your family. Because you bear the name of Jesus, who we deny. And we can be thankful for a time that the hatred isn't quite so extreme for us, for the most part, for us at least gathered here today in Malaysia. And yet we can still expect opposition. And we can expect it to come from out of the blue. Particularly as we do our duty. As God's people. As we seek to share the good news of Christ crucified with all who will hear. As we use these flyers that we have today. That we're going to give you. So you can invite your non-Christian friends and your non-Christian families for the guest night coming up. 
And we should be doing that. But friends, be prepared, yeah? The fact that as you bring your friends, your family even, to come, they might not like what they hear on this evening. Being told about the reality of our sin. That we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. That we need to bow to Jesus as Lord if we are to know life in the place of judgment for the ways in which we've treated God. Oh, we can expect opposition as we seek to make Christ known. We've got to be prepared. And I think actually these chapters encourage us as we face and bear up under the tough opposition we will face from time to time. That brings us just to the second lesson we have here. Don't be discouraged by opposition. Don't be discouraged by opposition. I mean, it looks like there's so much discouragement in these verses, but if we read them carefully, we see hints of hope. Haman did appear very powerful. He was a serious threat to God's people. His edict of genocide had been approved by the king. The date was set and the Jews appeared to be doomed, but there are just these hints of hope. Remember how superstitious Haman just rolled those dice? And it just so happened as a result, he had to wait a full year to carry out his wicked plot. And that was buying Esther and Mordecai precious time to do something about it. Esther, she just happens to have been exalted right now. She's now queen of Persia in this position of great influence that none of the Jews enjoyed before. Oh, Mordecai could see that another hand was working. As he said to Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yes, God is still working in the darkness, exalting Esther, frustrating Haman's plans. He controls the throw of a dice. He controls the outcome. Working through this present darkness to bring about his good purposes for his people. And again, that is just a pale reflection of what God has achieved ultimately in the cross. Esther was hesitant to put her life on the line, wasn't she? She resolved to act in the end. If I perish, I perish. It's much like our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. He cried out to his father, Father, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, let it be so. And yet, like Esther, he resolved to act. Not my will, but yours be done. As he was tried in a mock court, declared a criminal, though he was innocent. As he was stripped and beaten, flogged, and then handed over to death at the hands of wicked men. And at every step, he resolved to continue. Because he knew who was really in control. He knew his heavenly Father was working sovereignly, and through that wickedness, he was bringing about the salvation he had promised to his people, to Abraham, to the Jews, and even now to us, that rescue from sin and death we so desperately need. Friends, whenever you are in doubt that God can use the most horrific of situations to bring about his good purposes in his time, Remember the cross on which Jesus died? Whenever you're feeling discouraged in the coming months when you face opposition for serving Christ and his gospel, look to the cross on which Jesus died and root your confidence in God's power that he worked through the most horrific 
of moments in history. Remember that that, that that cross on which God's son died, that was what God used to secure your forgiveness and life with him. And let that spur you on as you seek to make Christ known, as you endure the opposition, when your colleagues disrespect you, when your family disapproves, even when you are having to put your own health, your own worldly security on the line to remain faithful. Root your confidence, your comfort in Christ and his cross. In the fact that he suffered and he suffered far more than we ever will and he did it according to his father's plan so that one day we as his people will suffer no more. Friends, these dark chapters, and they are dark chapters in Esther that we've seen today, it does warn us as God's people, opposition is real and it will come. We will suffer for bearing Christ's name in this world, but it encourages us that our sovereign Lord reigns over all the darkness, and he uses the very opposition that seeks to harm his people to achieve his awesome purposes, as we will see in Esther, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So be encouraged and keep going. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you that it shows us in clear terms that opposition to your people in this life is real. That we, as we bear the name of Christ, can expect to suffer as he did. As the world hated him so at times and in many ways we will be shown hatred as we seek to honor him and live with him as our Lord. And so, Father, help us to remember this word, to look to the cross on which he died, to remember that you are the God who reigns over the darkness and you can use it and you will use it for your good purposes, for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And, Father, may that truth spur us on to be giving our lives to Christ and to the service of his gospel, knowing that you will never abandon your people in him. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.